We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. We're in Acts 1, so you're already there. Let me, let me pray, and then uh, we'll, we'll get started. This is a prayer from William Ames. May that good spirit of Jesus Christ open the eyes of our minds, that we may see and approve things that are excellent. May he persuade our hearts to receive the truth and the love of it, and direct our steps to walk in the paths of mercy and truth, that we may be saved. Amen. Here, the Heidelberg Catechism, question 21. Question, what is true faith? Answer, true faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in Scripture, it is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit creates in me by the gospel that God has freely granted not only to others, but to me also, forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These are gifts of sheer grace, granted solely by Christ's merit. Trust may be difficult for some of you, uh, some of you to think about. You may have been betrayed or lied to and neglected through the abuse of trust. Evidence of this mistrust is abundant. For others, however, trust may still be difficult, but easier because of your experience of God's faithfulness. Again, evidence uh, is abundant via God's faithfulness. Nevertheless, whichever broad group you may find yourself, trust in God is, is one thing that must be admonished in us over and over and over again because of how often and easily we forget. Because too often we're distracted by some worldly desire or our gaze is, is clouded by some suffering or sorrow. We're in need of a desperate we're in desperate need of a strong arm to uphold us and carry us until the end because we sure cannot, no matter how many times we've tried. In studying this text, I was constantly reminded of my dad's own life of faith. Now, despite my youthful arrogance and sin in the moment, I now see retrospectively the immense trust that my dad had in our God in the midst of and despite uncertainty and confusion. So when dad was in his final weeks, I got some of his Bibles out and began looking through them to see where he lived and breathed and really had his being. This was clearly in the Psalms where it was marked up with prayers and it was battered and torn. But as I flipped through the pages, I noticed a pattern of short, quick prayers as if he was gasping for, for air, for life. He would write something like, help, Lord, I'm, I'm so tired of this flesh. I'm so tired of trying, not knowing what to do. And then he would write, thank you, Lord, for being faithful, like the very next line. And he would write, I trust you, Lord, teach me. All those times of confusion and sorrow were providential means of grace that brought him closer to the Lord and to trust him. So there's no other way around it. The Christian life is one of continual death, killing the sin that remains and clinging to Christ when the brokenness of this world is tearing you apart. Though it may be cold and dark, the Christian life is lived in the rock of ages who shields and strengthens you in the everlasting life. 
For as long as the light shines, you're kept warm and secure. Therefore, the Christian life is, is marked by humble trust. So my, my adult thesis is, is this. We can be confident that God will do as he has promised. For he is unchanging, his word does not return void, and he empowers us to endure to his return. We can be confident that God will do as he has promised, for he is unchanging, his word does not return void, and he empowers us to endure to the end. Kids, here's, here's your thesis. God is trustworthy because he keeps his promises. The question, why is God trustworthy? Answer, because he keeps his promises. The way I want to do this and demonstrate this is through looking at the disciples' trust in God as a result of the fulfillment of his word. And in particular here in this passage, Judas's apostasy and his replacement is the narrow table setting. And this is, this is sandwiched between the ascension and Pentecost. This is important. Because all of this is demonstrating the promise-keeping righteousness of the unchanging God. So, the way I want to do this is through four descriptions of the disciples' trust. And uh, they all start with P's. This is my first alliteration, and Kristen somewhat rolled her eyes at me because I have come further into Baptist life if I haven't already been there so long. So we have patient trust in God, prayerful trust in God, prophetic trust in God, and providential trust in God. It's patient, prayerful, prophetic, providential. Look with me in verses 12 through 13. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, Sabbath day journey away. When they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James. We pick up the narrative when the followers of Jesus have returned to Jerusalem, awaiting the arrival of the Holy Spirit, per Jesus' instruction in verses 4 and 5. They've just witnessed the resurrected, the resurrected Christ ascend into heaven, and now we're exhorted by the angels that he will return in the same manner. They're given a promise. Now, it's important to see that the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father establishes the, the basis, the, the sustenance, the ongoing power, and the goal of the mission of the church. Because Jesus has defeated death, he's, he, he reigns on high, and is interceding on behalf of his people, the people of God are given life to endure. Right? Matthew 28, all authority is his, and he is with us always in his spirit. Thus, we are given power and assurance to complete the mission. The promise of Christ, the gift of the spirit, and his return thus admonishes the disciples toward what we see here. Prayer, unity, and obedience. The names listed there in verse 13 are the same ones from Luke 6, and they are all gathered in the upper room where they were staying. Now, scholars are not sure whether or not this was the same upper room for the Lord's Supper, but we know the room was at least large enough for 120 people, which in, in Jewish culture considered a gathering, an assembly a community. But remember, the disciples weren't given a timeline. They weren't given a schedule of events. They weren't told how the ministry of the Spirit would work or 
what Pentecost would look like or when Jesus would return. Nevertheless, we see a patient trust in God and his word that leads them to obedience. We noticed this in our time in the prophets, right? Prophets reminded the people repeatedly that God had not gone back on his word of promise, and he surely won't do it now. This is why Paul uses Abraham as an example of faith in Romans 4, because he was fully convinced, fully convinced that God would do as he has promised. So they took God at his word. They took God at his word. They were convinced fully that God would do all he has promised, and this is what faith looks like amongst the people of God. Fully convinced in God, his word, and it often looks like patience and this this plotting of steady obedience. It often looks unordinary. But this patient waiting for the Spirit in Jerusalem wasn't passive. For the disciples spent time in prayer and obedience to the Lord. Look with me in verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Here we see this, this prayerful trust in God creates a devoted unity, a, a one mindness, a one purposeness, because of it's based on the word of God, right? This phrase one, with one accord, one word in the Greek, is used nine other times in Acts. And here we see the group is operating in obedience, patiently waiting for the Spirit by praying in preparation. This is how they wait. They, they obey in prayer. Osborne, New Testament scholar, notes the difference in the disciples between Jesus' death and, and now. He says, before each one of them had looked out for number one, looked out for self and fled, hiding themselves from, for Jesus' entire time on the cross, unless they be arrested or persecuted. That is no longer the case now. They are entirely centered on God. They were totally focused on prayer and unity based on the promises of God. They knew the mission that Christ gave and were awaiting the Spirit to fulfill it. Now the prayers were focused on what they had heard and seen in the person and work of Jesus as he had fulfilled the Scriptures. The resurrected Christ had appeared to them and ascended to heaven, leaving a a gospel commission and the promise of the Spirit. They were readying themselves for this mission through prayer and devotion to God. We could even say that the disciples were praying the very words and promises of Scripture themselves, the very words of God. The disciples knew that they could not do any of this in their own strength. Thus they prayed so that they would press ever more towards God, that is, imitating him by living in unity and prayer. Peterson also notes that at almost every turning point in the narrative of the book of Acts, narrative of God's redemptive plan, prayer is a focal point. The disciples were praying for the fulfillment of God's plan in Christ by the Spirit. And and notice strikingly the mention of women present here in the group. As we'll see throughout the book of Acts, women play a major role in the mission, the Great Commission. And particularly here, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is portrayed as a, as a model of trust and obedience to God's redemptive will and plan. Prayer, then, is the frame of reference in which Christians think. It's meditation on the scriptural promises, which are our food. This is what we, 
live and breathe and have our being. It's on the scriptural promises. Prayer is the divine gift by which we taste and see that the Lord is good. And we do this through imitation and participation in him. This great commission given by Jesus is also an exhortation toward holiness and growing up into salvation through imitating God, as Peter would say in his first epistle. Notice the connection that Jesus makes between the promised gift of the Spirit and his return to consummate his kingdom. Imitation of God is an eschatological reality, breaking into the present. In other words, the fullness of our imitation, what Paul is going to refer as glorification, occurs after our resurrection in the new heavens and new earth, but is a reality now because we have the Spirit. Imitation is a reality now. Therefore, there is an intimate relation between Jesus' resurrection and ours, between Jesus' ascension and ours, between the Great Commission and our participation in God, between the gift of the Spirit and our imitation of God. This disposition of prayerful trust is the way of righteousness that trains us to live in accordance to our resurrected status as those who are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You're already seated. This is your resurrected status, seated with Christ on high. As we'll see throughout Acts, inclusion in the new covenant community, that is the life of God himself, and thereby the Great Commission, is a profound gift of grace from the bountiful life of the Trinity. You're being swept up into and counted a part of this reality is really true right now. Not when you get your act together or when the storm of trial passes, but right now you're seated with Christ on high. Status, resurrected. Prayer then is our training program. Prayer disposes us toward God and and reorients our desires in such a way that we desire God more and more who is supremely good and the source who sustains it. As Chris Holmes puts it this way, prayer perfects our appetites. This posture and disposition of humble and prayerful trust in the sovereign God who raised Jesus from the dead is even more necessary now for the disciples that Judas is dead because this position must be fulfilled. They now ever, more than ever need the Lord and his wisdom. Look with me in verses 15 through 20. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. He said, brothers... Scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David, concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. Falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And he became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akudema, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Verses 15 and 16 state that Peter rose and said that the scriptures had to be fulfilled. It was necessary. It was a divine necessity that, when they, that what they spoke of had to come to pass. Because God's word does not return void. He speaks and it exists. Here, Peter is speaking of Judas' apostasy and his replacement of fulfillment, such that the divine plan of God continues. And no matter how awful the situation looks for the disciples, no matter how bleak, 
Peter admonishes his brothers and sisters that this was part of the plan of God. It had to be fulfilled. So he's admonishing the disciples, the brothers and sisters, to have a trust in the prophetic plan of God. Now, very brief comment about the language of fulfillment here in Acts and reading and interpreting your Bible. The language of fulfillment is littered throughout Acts, and, and rightly so, right? As Paul says in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son and sent forth the Spirit of his Son to dwell in our hearts, calling God Abba, Father. The person and work of Jesus, including his teachings about God's plan and fulfillment of salvation, was the decisive way the earliest Christians used and interpreted the scriptures. Whole passages and themes were employed to determine meaning through the lens of Christ Jesus. In other words, the bigger picture of God's redemptive plan in the person and work of Jesus helps determine the smaller details of the picture of God's redemptive plan. We might say it this way. The author of divine revelation, the Holy Trinity, is the subject matter of divine revelation. God the Father speaks through his eternal word and spirit in creation, providence, and redemption. Thus, with divine inspiration appropriated to the Holy Spirit here, we know the content of his inspiration will concern the subject matter, reconciling all things unto God the Father through the risen Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Therefore, with the lesson and teaching of Jesus of how to read their Bibles, Peter, the disciples, you and me, are instructed to interpret the scriptures through Jesus Christ to taste and to see that the Lord is good. This is the point. To taste and see that the Lord is good. Peter's following the lead of Jesus, and so should we. Now in verse 16, some scholars say that Luke potentially has Psalm 41.9 and 2 Samuel 17, 1-23 in mind, for a typological relationship between David and his betrayer, and Jesus and Judas. Just as David was betrayed and abandoned and suffered before he gained his throne, so did Jesus. Just as David's betrayer hanged himself, so did Jesus' betrayer, Judas. And this is what it means that the scripture had to be fulfilled. These passages are pointing to its climax or to its true reference in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is the, the better David who is betrayed and abandoned and suffers for his people. But, like Joseph in Egypt, God always has and always will turn what the enemy means for evil into good because the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Indeed, this is providential sovereignty on display. Now, some of you may be aware of the differing accounts of Judas's death in Matthew and Acts, but... The details of Judas and his death, or why Luke is differing from Matthew, are not necessarily the main point here. Happy to talk about that later. Suffice it to say that they have different intents. The main point of both Matthew and Luke's account of Judas's betrayal is this is horrid sin, betrayal of Jesus, and that shows that the punishment for the sin is death, and that this was all part of God's redemptive plan. And the immensely wonderful fact that the betrayal did not catch Jesus off guard, for it was foretold by the Spirit. More on this later. Judas received his inheritance of 30 pieces of silver by denying and betraying Jesus. Apostasy. He gave up everything for a few pieces of silver. And yet, he lost the money, lost the field that it purchased, and ultimately, 
he lost his life. It's worth noting the parallels between Judas's disposition and his priorities with how the book of Acts portrays the church's disposition and priorities. The parallel revolves around selfish temporal gain and humble eternal gain. You see, Judas betrayed Jesus for a mere 30 pieces of silver and lost his life. Yet, as we'll see in the book of Acts, the church stewards their gifts of financial and material resources for the mission going forward, for the church and her good. That's because they have a humble and eternal mindset. They have a prayerful trust in God. And ultimately, they know that what is of earth will fade, but God is their grand reward. They will see him face to face in all his beauty and splendor. This is their vision, God himself. Luke tells us that Jesus' body ends up in a field called the field of blood, the reward of his wickedness. Again, as we're so prone to do with narrative text, this title, field of blood, may seem insignificant, as if it was given that title because Judas' body bled out and now it's a field of blood. However, as, as Patrick shows, the, the connection with language of the desolate place here with the Old Testament prophets. So you see it first in Psalm, then in the prophets, and then, and then here. This desolate place is the home of wickedness and, un, and the unrighteous ones, who are, who are often the, the religious ones, by the way. By contrast, the way of righteousness is a humble and contrite heart, not like the way of the wicked, The way of the wicked seal their fate with their own blood. Right? So there's two ways. The way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. As, as Patrick says, one either has substitute blood or their fate is sealed with their own blood. Money and possessions then act like a physical barometer for who are walking in the way of righteous and who are not. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that if you're not giving money or time or resources, then you're not being faithful. What's, what I'm saying here, what's in view here, is our posture and, and disposition in your giving. God has graciously given us gifts such that we bless his name and bless others for the church and its mission. And according to the scripture here in Acts 120, Psalm 69 and 109 are references to Judas's betrayal and replacement. Both are David's prayer for, to God for help and aid. In Psalm 69 and 109, David, God's chosen one, is shamed and suffering from his enemies. So he calls on God, he prays to God for help and to judge and inflict punishment on the, his enemies and to replace them. And we're shown here that Judas is linked as the betrayer of God's chosen one, Christ Jesus. It's prophesied by the Spirit in David. So we see here that, that the fate of Judas and all those in the way of, of wickedness, those who deny Christ, shaming and mocking God's chosen one, is desolation and God's wrath. But those who follow the path of righteousness, our hope is in the risen and ascended Lord. And our risen and ascended Lord is not frustrated by human rebellion and will not even allow apostasy to hinder the fulfillment of his saving purposes. Hear me. Brother and sister, nothing can thwart the plan of God. Nothing. So let this be a strong admonishment for you. The evil and wickedness of this world cannot stop 
It cannot pause and it cannot alter God in the fulfillment of his promises. Nor can your sin make him stop carrying you to the end. As if he finally got tired of carrying you in your moaning and complaining and sinning. Indeed, all of these things, the schemes of the enemy and your sin, are under the sovereign reign of the risen and ascended Christ. Put your trust in the one who reigns over all. Finally, look with me in verses 21 through 26. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time, the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who's also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. He was numbered with the eleven apostles. So we see this providential trust in God. With Psalm 109, 8 in mind, Peter finds it necessary to find a replacement for Judas. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. So in this final section, the brief but exclusive qualifications for the position are set forth. So in, the, in that community of the 120, only two meet the qualifications. That is, accompanying Jesus from his baptism through his ascension and are witnesses of the resurrection. Joseph Barsabbas Justice and Matthias. So they do what they know best to do. They pray to the risen and ascended Lord. Again, Luke is reiterating the contrasting ways of righteousness and the wicked, of Judas and the disciples. Judas turned to go to his own place, the place where the desires of the wicked led, death and desolation. But the way of righteousness, that is the way of prayer, is lived like a tree planted by streams of water. So the righteous not only know that God is sovereignly providential, but they put all their chips on the table. All their doubt, all their fears, all their worries, all their hopes, they put it all on the table. Because they know that God has not and will not fail to keep his word. So as you reflect on your own life, what way do you find yourself? Is it like Judas, marked by selfish gain, hypocrisy, and greed? Or is it like the early Christians, marked by humility, and trust, and prayerful dependence on God? Is it marked by stewarding your resources for the good of the church and its mission? Now, it was customary in Jewish practice to cast lots to determine the will of God. So the lot falls on Matthias. And they knew that wherever the lot fell reflects God's will because there is no random event in the universe, right? Nevertheless, this is to be taken as descriptive, not prescriptive, because now, now we have the Spirit. Right, so this is before Pentecost, this is the next chapter. We have a spirit, and he gives us wisdom, and guidance, and direction, and prudence for today. And he mainly does this through his word. He guides us and gives us wisdom in his word. Now, the selection of Matthias is highly important. While Judas is a, is a signpost for warning, the selection of Matthias is a symbol for God's reconstitution of his chosen people, his reestablishment of his people. In other words, while this section between the Ascension and Pentecost may seem to have little importance, the election of Matthias as the twelfth apostle is a symbol of God's fulfilling his promises to restore Israel, his servant. 
In Isaiah 11.13 and 49.6, God promised to cease the enemies harassing and restore his people. As we mentioned above, and as many commentators know, this fulfillment language Peter is using refers to both Judas' apostasy and Matthias' being chosen as God's symbolic making whole again Israel. So this selection is, is really important because this is how God continues his redemptive narrative. And he does it through apostasy of all things. And remember, this narrative is also showing what happens to those who oppose the kingdom of the beloved Son and those who gladly submit to his lordship. Again, which path do you find yourself on? Are you gladly submitting to his lordship? Or are you on the path of desolation and death? This providential aligning of human history is a deep comfort for us. Since his ways are not our ways, we can trust him with full confidence and assurance. He is the Holy One of Israel whose ways are intended for his glory and our good. Our experiences of his providence in times of both rejoicing and sorrow are instruments of grace to bring us closer in prayer and trust in him. Christ says to the weary and the heavy burden, Come, my yoke is light, and at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. And they're yours. They're yours, Christian. Your God has made his home near to the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. Because God is unchanging, has defeated sin and death in his Son, and has given you his Spirit, your heart can be glad. Your whole being can rejoice, and you can dwell secure in his arms. He will not abandon your soul to shale, to desolation, nor let you, his holy ones, see corruption. And when pastoral charges take the form of um, uh, indicators or marks of what a community omission looks like, so this first one is prayerfully depend on God and his promises. Prayerful dependence on God and his promises. Dependence on, the, on Christ's resurrection and the revelation of the Spirit are genuine indicators of the Christian in, in every generation. We've been baptized with the Spirit to pray and obey the word as it is fulfilled. So as it was to the people of Jerusalem, let, Judas's, uh, let Judas be an example for us to remain faithful unto God, not turning aside to go to our own place. What other refuge do we have than God himself, the rock of ages? He has demonstrated that he is strong and that his steady hand will not drop us from making it to the end. Again, hear the Heidelberg Catechism, question 21. What is true faith? Answer, true faith is not only a secure knowledge by which I hold true all that God has revealed to us in Scripture. It is a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit creates in me by the gospel that God has freely granted, not only to others, but to me also, the forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These are gifts of sheer grace, granted solely by Christ's merit. Second, be students of the word. Devote yourselves to growing in the knowledge of God as you imitate Christ in fellowship with the Spirit. This looks like admonishing one another with the word in community groups, over coffee, over over dinners, Bible studies, and cohorts, and classes. But this isn't merely intellectual work or study or memorization. Being students of the Word looks like the early disciples here in the book of Acts. It looks like prayer. It looks like studying, and patience, generosity, and humility, and hospitality, proclaiming the gospel. It's like courage, and looks like longing for Jesus' return. 
So a community on mission is marked by students of the word who are both hearers and doers. Third and finally, patiently anticipate Jesus' return. Not only were the early Christians empowered to fulfill the mission by the Spirit, they were also eager and zealous to complete the mission because Jesus promised he was coming back. Longing for Jesus' return is a Christianly thing to do because one, lamenting the sin and brokenness in this world is a prayerful way of depending on God. Second, it recognizes the only solution to the sinful and broken world is Jesus. And third, we desire that all who hear and believe in Jesus, the only mediator between God and man. So, as you patiently anticipate Jesus' return, lament the sin and brokenness in this world, long for his return to make all things new, and eagerly plead with those who do not believe. Let me pray. Lord, you are God, and your words are true. You have promised goodness to your servants. You have left us nothing to ask from your hands but what you have already freely granted. Establish forever the word which you have spoken concerning your servants. Do as you have said, and let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts, he is the God of Israel. Amen. We now come to our time of communion at the Lord's table as we partake of the bread and the cup to remember and be encouraged to trust in the, the promise-keeping, unchanging God that has given us his word. And not only to be, re- to be remembered, but to be nourished with this meal. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.